0: If God is God, then serve Him. Be all in. But if He's not God, then what are you doing here? I mean, go out and enjoy your Sunday if God is not God. Go enjoy your Sunday doing something else, because I find great joy in meeting with with my brothers and sisters, right? If God is God, quit being on the fence and live for God with all your heart. Hi, my name is Michael Tuck and I'm the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. And this morning if you're staying in big church, if you turn in your Bibles to Isaiah in the Old Testament to uh, chapter 51. In his letter, To the Romans, the Apostle Paul writes in chapter 9, verse 6, something I think is really important for us to understand. And it's actually going to provide, I've got a long introduction this morning. Hopefully you can follow me. It's going to be linear in thought, but it's actually going to, I think, kind of lay a foundation for some of the things that we're going to talk about in Isaiah 51. But uh, Paul makes this statement in uh, in Romans nine, verse six. He says, "Now it is not as though the word of God has failed, because not all who are descended from Israel are Israel." So Paul tells us that there are two Israel's. What does he mean by that? Well, it's actually pretty simple. It's actually pretty simple. There was the nation that God formed, the nation we call Israel, or he called Israel. It was a geopolitical nation that God established. And when, Mo- when Moses led the descendants of Jacob out of Egypt and back into the land he had promised them, he formed a nation out of them. And if you go back and read the text in Exodus, you'll find that, that the nation was composed of the descendants of Jacob, and it was composed of Egyptians as well. There was a number of Egyptians that had left Egypt with Israel for for whatever reason. The other Israel that Paul alludes to here is what I like to call the Israel that is by faith. Uh, It is um, the people of national Israel, the nation, and the people of the world, notice I say both of those, who have put their faith in God as creator. Now, in the context of Israel, the, the geopolitical nation that God formed, these would be the, the true Israel. Amongst them would be the descendants of Jacob, who loved God and trusted God and sought to keep God's covenant as part of that uh, as part of that nation. They're often referred to in your Bible. Whenever you see in your Old Testament or in the New Testament, or you see it talking about the remnant right? In the Old Testament. The remnant was the true, uh, I like to call them the true Israel by faith. They were the the folks who were part of the national Israel, but they also loved God and they followed after God. Now here's an important truth. God always intended and expected that his geopolitical nation of Israel would be one and the same with his Israel by faith. He always fought and wanted them to be an exact overlay of each other. In other words, that all of national Israel would be Israel by faith, that all of National Israel would love the God of Israel and would follow the God of Israel and keep his covenant. But what seems pretty true to me is that they almost never, they never really were, and they were almost never even close. Elijah the prophet uh, once commented that he was the only one left in national political Israel that was following after God. Now, God had to set him straight. You remember the story, right? After after God defeats the Baals, God tells him, no, you're not the only one. There's over 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Well, 7,000 might sound like a big number, but out of a nation of hundreds of thousands Of people, 7,000 isn't really all that many. The political nation seems to have always or constantly walked in disobedience and disregard for God. Even those who judged Israel were often. Uh, not men, and well, Deborah was a woman who judged Israel, but she loved God, but not all of the judges really seemed to have been men after God's own heart. And so God was constantly disciplining national Israel, right? With the hope that national Israel would become Israel by faith. He, God wanted those two, two Israels to overlap, to be one and and the same. Now, Isaiah is writing to national Israel in chapters 1 through verse 30, chapter 1 through 39, and he's basically telling them it's, it's too late. But it's never too late, right? God went, God sent Jonah to, to Nineveh and basically saying it's too late. God's going to destroy you, but they repented and he didn't. So I think even in chapters one through 39, God is hoping that national Israel will repent. But basically in chapters one through 39, God is telling Israel, it's too late. I'm going to judge. I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to judge you. And Babylon's going to come and they're going to exile you out of the land. Now when we get to, uh, chapter, Um, Let me see. Hang on a second. Uh, So now we're in the second part of Isaiah. And in the second part of Isaiah, God is focused on telling the nation of Israel, though I'm going to discipline you, I am not giving up on you. If you were here last week, you remember God said to them, I'm not divorcing you. I'm not just arbitrarily selling you out to slavery, right? In other words, what's happening to you is a result of your own your own disobedience, your own rebellion against me. So um, so he's saying that I'm going to discipline you that you might repent. So through Isaiah, 170 years in advance, God is telling them to the nation, to national Israel, I will restore you as a nation. I will bring you back from Babylon. Now, I want to be clear about something. I, I think this is a truism. And, and again, if I say something that's wrong, I mean, feel free to correct me. Not, not in the middle of this talk, right? But maybe afterwards come and say, hey, you got that wrong. That's fine. I, I, appreci- I can appreciate that. But um, so when God is disciplining national Israel, he's not really disciplining Israel by faith. Because they love God, and they're still following God, and their desire is for their whole nation to follow God. So he's disciplining national Israel, but he's not disciplining his his true Israel by faith. But listen to this, what national Israel does so often affects the true Israel of God. In other words, they will suffer, they will suffer the discipline that God is directing at national Israel, um, but, but he's not disciplining them for their rebellion. He's disciplining the nation a, as a whole. And, uh, and here's just something I thought of. So often, my sin affects others. God might be disciplining me for my sin. God might be disciplining you for your sin. But you know, a lot of times when that happens, it's the people around you who are not necessarily being disciplined by God, but they, they will have to suffer the ramifications of that discipline that God God is directing at, uh, at you. So, and let's be transparent here because God is omniscient and he knows everything. Here's what he knows. He knows the future, so he knows that the return of national Israel back into the land, back as a nation, will not, in the end, bring national Israel and true Israel back into alignment Whatever alignment there's going to be after Israel the nation returns to the land, whatever alignment there is with national Israel and the true Israel of God being one, right? It's only going to be temporary. It's not going to last. It kind of made me think, and and I'm not even going to go there. I'm not going to go there because there's too much confusion about the church in America. So I'm not going to go there. But anyway, their alignment will be temporary. It's not going to be this permanent thing. So here's what God promises Even at this time, even at the time that he's about to exile them to Babylon, even at the time that he knows they're coming back, he says, I'm promising to bring you back. Even though he knows all that, this is what God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with my people, with my, I think it's with my true Israel. And he uses the prophet Jeremiah to, to, to announce this covenant. And he says, it's going to be different than the covenant I made with the geopolitical nation, Israel. And so here's what Jeremiah the prophet said in chapter 31, verse 31. Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt by my covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord declares. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord declares. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest of them this is the lord's declaration for I will forgive their iniquity and never again remember their sin i 'm going to suggest to you and, and again you, I might be wrong but this is this is what I believe is true God is saying i 'm going to make a covenant with my Israel by faith he 's distinguishing his israels here and he 's not talking about the geopolitical nation anymore he 's talking about the remnant he 's talking about the men and women who are following Him and loving Him and serving Him. And if I'm right, and if I'm right, then what God said in the last couple of weeks, as we've been talking about His servant, remember, what is is His servant going to do? He's going to make a, a covenant, right? And I'm suggesting to you that the covenant that the servant is going to make is the covenant that Jeremiah is promising. And it would be a covenant that wouldn't just be with national geopolitical Israel, but it will be a covenant that God is making with the coast and with the islands, which we've seen repeatedly throughout Isaiah, beginning at chapter 40. And the coast and the islands, everyone agrees, is talking about the Gentile nations. And so God says that his servant's going to make a covenant with anyone and everyone, From amongst Israel, the nation, and amongst the nations of the world, anyone who puts their faith in Yahweh, that's that's the covenant name of God. Anyone who puts their faith in Creator God, God's going to write this new covenant with them. And the servant, the Lord Jesus, on, on the night before his death, tells his disciples and gives them a visual reminder, I'm about to inaugurate this new covenant with you. And this new covenant's going to be through my death. That's how it's going to bring about. It's how it's going to come about. My death is going to inaugurate this new covenant. When we get to the book of Hebrews in chapter 8, verse 13, it says that the new covenant has rendered the old covenant obsolete. And, and old, and it was about to pass away. Now, not all Christians agree that the old covenant passed away. Some believe it's on hold and it will return. I just want to say, I, I don't think that's true. I think it has passed away. I don't think it's coming back. And I think A.D. 70, when God destroyed the temple of the old covenant, I personally think he was, he, it was passing away, even as, even as the book of Hebrews said it would becoming obsolete and would pass away. I think AD 70, with the destruction of the sacrificial system, the destruction of the temple, God was putting that covenant to rest. Today, God, and we all agree on this, whether you believe the old covenant is coming back, we all agree on this. Today, God operates under the new covenant. He has a new nation and a new people. Instead of working through the geopolitical nation Israel, God has said that his Israel by faith will be his nation. His Israel by faith will be his people, his priest to the world. Here's how Peter puts it in his uh, first letter. He says, you are, talking to us who follow Jesus, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. All the things he said in the first covenant to his geopolitical nation Israel. He says to us, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. So that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so we are the people of God, the nation of God, his temple, his priest. We are God's Israel by faith. Now, I've said all of that to say this one thing, okay? I believe that what we're going to read in Isaiah 51 through 53, all right? We're not going to go that far today. In fact, all we're going to cover is 51, 1 to 8, all right? But but I believe that Isaiah 51 through 53 which we're going to be studying over the next couple of weeks I don't believe it's directed at the at the geopolitical covenant nation of Israel that I've been talking about. I think it's directed towards the true Israel of God. I think it's directed towards the Israel that is by faith, the Israel that is loving God. And so if I'm right that it's directed towards the Israel by faith, those who are faithful within the nation, then it also applies to those who would later be part of this new covenant that God has made with his faithful, which was to include all of those in Israel and all beyond Israel. I believe these next chapters are directed towards the faithful of God in Israel and by, extent, by extension, the faithful that are to come. And so, listen to me, everyone. This, this next part of Isaiah is going to be directed towards us. And it's directed towards us to encourage us. Now, Uh, since the faithful who are immediately a part of the geopolitical nation of Israel at this moment, much of what is said to them is going to apply to the, to the nat, to national Israel as well. And, and I'll be, I'll, I'll point out that some of this could be just directed towards national Israel and not towards the true Israel by faith. But, but I'm going to try to prove to you from the text that I think this is directed not at all the nation, but at the faithful. Within the nation, and so consequently for us as well. So let me see if I can convince you of that. The two chapters that we're they're speaking of today and, and next Sunday are be chapters 51 and 52, and we'll, we'll wait for 53 and deal with it on the following Sunday after that. But in these two chapters, let me show you how it's broken down and how it's divided up so that you could follow along. You can even see this in your own text. But, but chapter 51 begins uh, first with God instructing Israel. And he instructs Israel three times. Again, I know I'm repeating myself, but remember, there's the, there's the national Israel, and then there's the, the remnant Israel. There's the Israel by faith. I believe this is directed towards the Israel by faith. Each time, in each of these instructions, God will address himself to them Twice. He will call them two separate things, but similar things each time He, uh, he speaks to them. And, uh, and we're going to look at that this morning. That's chapter 51, 1 through 8. Then after chapter 8, in verse 9, we'll see God's people asking God a question. And they're going to say, God? And they're going to ask Him this question. And then God's going to answer that question. And then after we get through that, we'll, we'll see God uh, directing uh, th- having three directives that he will give to Israel. And he'll use some of their own words in their question that they use to him, where they say, wake up, God, wake up. Well, when he turns around and gives his directives to them, he's going to basically say, wake up, Jerusalem, wake up, Jerusalem. So that's going to be the breakdown of the next two chapters. <clears throat> Did you follow that? Okay. So this morning, we're going to just look at that first part, which is God's um, God's instruction, if you would. And what's the difference between instruction and, uh, and directives? Probably nothing. So we have <laughs> instructions at the beginning and instructions at the end with this question in the, in the middle. So we're going to start looking at uh, the three sets of instructions. And here's why I believe that this is directed towards the true Israel by faith and not just the whole nation. Because here's the first instruction. It's in chapter 51, verse 1. And it begins like this Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. That's the first instruction. That's how it begins. Notice two directives towards them. They're both very similar. You pursue righteousness, you seek the Lord. The second one begins like this Pay attention, verse four Pay attention to me, my people, and listen to me, my nation. And yes, that I will say that could be applied to national Israel. Verse three, the third teaching begins, listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my instruction. Like I said, I grant you the second one could be directed towards just the national Israel, whether they whether they're seeking the Lord or not. But if you look at the instructions, the first set of instructions and the second set of instructions, God is definitely speaking to his people who love him. He's speaking to his people who are pursuing him. He's speaking to his people who seek righteousness, who seek the Lord. And that, beloved, is a subset of national Israel. That is the remnant of Israel. That is the true Israel by faith. In the last address, he calls them the people who know righteousness, a people whose heart, in whose hearts, uh, excuse me, a people in whose hearts the reside, reside the instruction. Of God. And so so God is basically saying, I'm writing to you who love me. I'm writing to you who follow me. I'm writing to you who love my instruction, who love righteousness. God is addressing the true faithful in Israel. And we go back to Romans chapter nine. It's not like all of Israel is Israel. There's the national Israel, but then there's the Israel within Israel that loves God. Furthermore, Next week, and I'm going to just mention this, next week when we get into the final set of directives, the Apostle Paul is going to take a lengthy set of that directive and he's going to apply it to us. And so I'm I'm of the opinion that this is directed towards a subset within the national nation of Israel. It's directive at those who love God, those who serve and follow after God. So I, I'm going to apply this to all of us who love God, to all of us who are following after God, to all of us who's, where His law has been written on our hearts and, and we're part of His covenant by grace through the Lord Jesus. So I'm going to apply it to us. So, with that in mind, let's dive in. There's three directives. Here's the first directive, or the first instruction, excuse me. Don't forget your roots. Chapter 51, verse 1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who gave birth to you. When I called to him, he was only one. I blessed him and made him many. To those of you who pursue righteousness, who seek the Lord, who want to be holy, don't forget Abraham. Uh, He's where you come from. He's your father. Remember him. Remember how I blessed him and made him the father of many and ultimately the father of many nations. So what is it that God wants them to remember about Abraham? Well, I think it's this, Genesis 15, 6, 5 and 6. He took Abraham outside, look at the sky and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. And Abraham believed the Lord, and God graciously, graciously gave him righteousness as a gift. He goes on to say, and God credited it to, to Abraham because he believed God. He credited it to him as righteousness. God graciously gave him righteousness in response to his faith. Paul writes a whole letter to tell us, tell us that we need to understand that, that righteousness isn't by merit god 's righteousness isn't given to you because you're meritorious it is graciously given to you because God you've put your faith in God and God has chosen to give it to everyone who will put his faith or her faith in the Lord Romans chapter one verse 16 for I am not ashamed of the good news Paul says because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes first to the Jew and also to the Greek for in it the The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it's written, the righteous will live by faith. Paul is saying righteousness comes by faith, not by our activity. Here he says it again in chapter 4, verse 13 of Romans. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Now some people think that your faith is meritorious, that your faith somehow merits your salvation. That is not true. Your faith does not merit your salvation. Paul's whole point is that faith is not a meritorious work. It's not a work at all. It's a response of a person to God. It is is you and me responding to the work of God in our lives. And when we trust God, love God, put our faith in Jesus, God gives us righteousness by which we can see the Lord, by which we will be able to see the Lord, because He gives you righteousness, not because you earn it. Have you ever wondered this? I mean, I used to wonder this, not anymore, but I used to wonder why the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none, none righteous, none that seeks after God, right? Right? But then almost in the very next paragraph, it says this. But Abraham was a righteous man. Job was a righteous man. Noah was a righteous man. Joseph was a righteous man. How is it that no one's righteous? But then the then the scripture turns around and says, all these people are righteous. It's because of this, beloved. It's because none of us is righteous in our own merit. Okay? There's none righteous in their own merit. Not one. None of you are righteous because you merit it, because somehow you're without sin or you haven't, you haven't ever failed the Lord or anything like that. You're not, you're not righteous on your own merit. But that doesn't mean that God can't give you his righteousness. And that's exactly what he does. He gives you his righteousness in your response. To to faith, you, in your response to His grace, He gives you righteousness. The Bible calls it imputed righteousness, where it's credited to us, it's put on us, it's given to us without merit. And God is reminding us: never forget that your relationship with Me is by grace. I freely give it to you. So here's my point: when, when if in that Isaiah passage where where God is saying, "Don't forget your roots." Don't forget the stone from which you were cut. Don't forget the ground from which you were were hewn out of. Don't forget it. What is he talking about? He's saying, don't forget that Abraham was righteous because of his faith because he believed God. He's not saying to national Israel, because it's not even true. Not even all national Israel was descendants of Jacob. There were Egyptians who were part of national Israel. He's basically saying, guys, don't forget how you were born out of faith. Don't forget how you came to be because you put your faith in me. That's how Abraham came to be, because he trusted me. Paul tells us of the new, new covenant in Galatians. He says this, You know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. Now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and proclaim the good news ahead of time to Abraham saying, All the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, listen, consequently, consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. Don't forget your roots, everyone. Your roots are faith. Your roots are that you trust God. And and when you trust God, he gives you righteousness. There's none righteous, no, not one. None of us are righteous by our own merit. But all of us can be righteous through the Lord Jesus. All of us can be declared and given the righteousness of God. And so here's what he's saying. Don't forget, don't forget Abraham's faith. Don't forget your own faith, guys. Then he says this, verse 3. God continues in this teaching. He says, For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and He will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like a garden of the Lord. Since I believe that God is speaking to, to the true Israel, this is a promise that is to come. Zion represents Jerusalem. Jerusalem represents God's people. Remember, remember, God himself is going to bring the new Jerusalem from heaven, whatever that it looks like or means. But, but God is going to dwell with us. Jerusalem represents the coming kingdom. Here's what God says. Hey, ultimately, ultimately, your place of dwelling will be with me. God's people will be with me and I will make it all right. God is promising our dwelling place will be like the Garden of Eden. God's gonna restore the world, everyone. God's gonna, the whole creation groans now. We've talked about that. It's groaning and it's waiting for the day when God redeems it, but God's gonna redeem it. And it's all going to be made new and it's going to be, the curse is going to be lifted and it'll be like the Garden of Eden. Joy and gladness, he continues, will be found in her thanksgiving and melodious song. Not only will the earth be redeemed, but the world will be filled with gladness and melodious singing. Thanksgiving will be on all of our hearts. And as I wrote that this week, you know what came to mind? Here's what came to mind. The hills are alive with the sound of music. I did, man. Remember the sound of music? I mean, she's walking through the hills, and the the hills are alive with the sound. Listen, the kingdom of God will be alive with the sound of music. And we will be singing with joy and gladness and praise and thanksgiving. That's what Isaiah is telling God's people within the nation Israel. And by extension, telling you and me too, because we are part of that. We are part of that kingdom. Here's the second instruction. And I can see I'm going to run out of time. But Here's God's second instruction. My worldwide kingdom is coming and God will come quickly. And it will come quickly. Okay, my worldwide kingdom is coming and it will come quickly. Did I say the first thing, my first point, or did I skip over it? Don't forget your roots. That was the first point, okay? And this is his is second teaching. My worldwide kingdom is coming. Verse 4, pay attention to me, my people. Listen to me, my nation, talking about God's people. For instruction will come from me and my justice for a light to the nations. I will bring it about quickly. My righteousness is near. My salvation appears. And my arms will bring justice to the nations. The coast and the islands will put their hope in me. And they will look to my strength. God is telling his people by faith his kingdom is coming to this world and his salvation is coming quickly. God will bring righteousness and justice to all the nations of the world. And along the way, God says the Gentile nations will put their hope in him. And I don't know if you realize this, but men and women from every tribe and tongue, every men, women from every geopolitical nation on the, on the planet, and men and women really from every ethnic group are coming to the kingdom. I don't know if they're all, if we have one from every kingdom, every ethnic group yet, but, but men and women from every tribe and ethnic group, they're coming to the Lord Jesus. The Gentile nations will put their hope in our Savior. It's not just the geopolitical nation. Israel. It never was about them. It never was just about them. God was raising them up that the whole world would see him and come to him. But they kept messing it up. They kept messing it up because the the, the true Israel of God didn't didn't overlap with the nation. So the nation was anything but something to draw men and women to God. In fact, they were repelled often by them because of their disobedience to the Lord. Um, maybe you wonder why God says it's near or it's coming quickly. You ever wonder that? I mean, it's been two millennia since Jesus was here. It's been so many millennia since, since the beginning, right? Well, how, how is it, how is it coming quickly? How is it near? And, and I don't have a great response. Here, here would be my response to that. In light of eternity, whatever time you speak of is short. I mean, you follow me there. I us mean, just think linear and logically for just a second. If indeed the kingdom of God is eternal and it has no end, and you will be an eternal person who lives forever and ever and ever and ever, then whatever time, whatever time is, it's just, it's like nothing. I mean, God himself says, listen, in my economy of time, a thousand years is but a, it's but a day, right? So I think God's trying to tell us that, yeah, man, it's going to come quickly. Maybe not how we judge time because we've only got, what, 80 years and then we're gone. And so that, I mean, that, that 80 years flies by, just flies by. And and so time seems to you know it just seems like a long time but in light of eternity it's not that long verse 6 look up to the heavens god tells them and look to, look at the earth beneath look for the heavens will vanish like smoke the earth will wear out like a garment and its inhabitants will die like gnats but my salvation will last forever and my righteousness will never be shattered the heavens are going to vanish like smoke the earth wear out like a garment People are going to die like gnats. I guess a gnat doesn't have a very long life span. But, but God's salvation, His kingdom is forever. His righteous will, sh- His righteous people will shine like the noonday sun. It'll never. His kingdom will never be destroyed, never shattered. So, just a, just a comment here you know, uh, the heavens and earth will pass away. I, I used to think that God was going to actually roll up all of the universe and, and start fresh with a new one. And he may very well do that. And if you hold to that understanding, that's absolutely fine. But I'm not so sure anymore. In Second Peter, you know, he talks about how the ancient world was destroyed by water and God has reserved the world for another destruction by fire. Well, when God destroyed the world by water, he didn't annihilate it. He didn't do away with it he just destroyed every life on it and then and then starts new so i'm i'm not so sure anymore god's not going to just you know refashion the world into into the kingdom that is his i, I don't know but here's here's my point i think he's telling them the old world order is going to be destroyed and the new world order is going to come And that sounds like Star Wars or something, whatever, you know, they, they took their stuff from us, right? Because the old world order is passing. And this new world order where Jesus is king over all the earth is coming. And I think that's what he's alluding to. It's coming. And when it comes, it's going to come soon. Maybe not as soon as we understand soon, but it's going to come soon. And when it comes, it's going to come quickly. So, so pay attention, people. My, my, my kingdom is coming, you know. Um, and his, by the way, his kingdom's already begun. All right, the kingdom, the, 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 the final stage of the kingdom where Jesus rules on our world and lives on our world forever, that's coming. But right now, Jesus rules in our heart, and we are his kingdom. His kingdom has begun and he's ruling in our hearts. Here's the third instruction do not fear the rejection of people. Look at verse seven. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my instruction. Do not fear disgrace by men and do not be shattered by their taunts. And I would say that that God would be directing that to people who are in Israel, the nation, or people outside the nation. For those of you who love me and know my word and know my will and, and have my righteousness, don't fear what men do and say to you. Do not fear their ridicule or disdain. And isn't this a good word for us because this is what you and I have to face mainly, is ridicule and disdain. I mean, we're, we're, none of you that I know of in this room anyway, none of you are afraid of, your, afraid of dying for your faith, are you? I mean, somebody threatening you because you're a Christian, they're going to kill you. Or, or, you know, basically what we have to fear is what he tells them. Don't fear the ridicule or disdain or disgrace of men. Amen. Here's why. Verse 8, for moss will devour them like a garment and worms will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will last forever and my salvation for all generations Here's why you guys don't have to be afraid. This is why we don't have to be ashamed or we don't have to, we don't have to somehow take on ourselves any kind of disgrace because of who we are as the children of God or the followers of Jesus. God says, because those guys who are making fun of you and shaming you and ridiculing you, I mean, the moths are going to eat them up like the mo- I mean they're going to die and be gone like moths eat up wool or like the um, I mean worms eat up the wool or moths eat up a garment you know but my salvation for you is forever god's going to destroy them but he's going to save you forever so why should you and i be afraid of their taunts why should we care what they think of us why should we be disgraced by people you know, ostracizing us or, or writing us off or not letting us in their group because we follow Jesus. And by the way, if they don't put you in your group because you're a jerk, that's a different thing. Seriously. Okay. If they don't put you in their group because you're, you're harsh and hateful. I mean, that's, that's a totally. I'm not talking about that. But if you're loving and kind and you follow Jesus and you're just like Jesus and they don't let you in their group and they write you off and they ridicule and man, so be it. Don't worry about it. Your salvation is eternal and forever. Their, their lifespan is, is just very, very temporary. They're going to be eaten by the moths and, and the worms. Okay? And just to go a little bit deeper... The Lord Jesus said this to us, His followers, to me and you. This is what He said. Not so much about ridicule and disdain or disgrace. This is what He said. He said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Don't fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Rather, fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in, in the valley of Henan. I'm not pretending I wouldn't be petrified if I lived in, uh, in Afghanistan right now. I'd, I'd be scared. I really would. Uh, or China. Or how about North Korea? You know, you're a believer in one of these places. Um, But here's what Isaiah is saying, and I I think this is what Jesus is saying to us. Remember who I am. And remember what I'm promising you. I am promising you eternal life. What about the old adage, "A, a, a bird in hand is worth two in the bush? That old American idiom, or English idiom. Is that true in this case? Well, actually, Russell, it's not, man. It's not. Because we're putting our faith in something that we cannot see. Right? We're putting our faith in the Lord Jesus. And yes, he died and rose again. But today we walk by faith. And so therefore, you have to give up being loved by everyone now. You have to give up. You have to give up necessarily even your life for the promise that God will save you forever. So it's a little bit different than a bird in the hand, right? We're putting our faith in what God has promised because of who He is. James intercises was killed following Jesus back in the 5th century. These were some of his last words. This death, which seems so terrible, is little enough to gain eternal life. Savior, receive a branch of the tree. It will decay, but will flower again and be clothed with glory. The vine dies in winter, yet revives in the spring. Shall not this life which is cut down rise again? My heart rejoices in the Lord, and my soul has exalted in your salvation. Don't be afraid of what men can do to you. All these things are connected. God's kingdom, his salvation, his coming. It'll be quickly. It's eternal. It's forever. So don't be afraid. Let's not be afraid. Why, why don't we speak up about Jesus? Why don't we talk about Jesus at work? Because we're, we're afraid. What are we afraid of? We're afraid. We're not necessarily afraid that people are going to cut us off, but we're, we're just afraid that people might think we're weird or different or strange. Don't worry about that. Don't worry about that. Follow Jesus. His salvation is forever. In fact, Jesus told us to do one step more. He says, not just don't be afraid. He says, love your enemies. Do good to those who despitefully use you and shame you and disgrace you and even hurt you. Because then we're like our Father who is in heaven. All right, so that's uh, the text. What's the main takeaway for us this morning? I think the main takeaway for us this morning is that we... This is, this is my main takeaway. I'm going to share it with you. Is that we need to remember our roots. I mean, I think that's the main takeaway this morning. Remember the rock from where you were hewn. Remember Abraham. Remember his faith. Walk by faith. Faith is the victory. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. There's none righteous, no, not one, except those to whom God imputes righteousness through faith. The gift of righteousness is bestowed on those who quit working for it and trust in God for it. So, as we talk about this takeaway, the place for me to to start, as I conclude this morning, is this: is your faith in the God of Israel? Is your faith and your trust in Yahweh? That's His name, His covenant name. It means that that's simply Hebrew for "I am," right? Is your faith in God? Is your faith? That's the question you need to ask yourself this morning. Is your faith in God? And again, I know I'm preaching to lots of people who have already put their faith in God, but I gotta think that maybe somebody might show up today whose faith isn't in God. So that's the place to start. Hey, is your faith in God? So how does one do that? How does one get their faith in God? Believe it or not, faith is something you choose. It's a willful decision to believe in something and trust it. So how does anyone trust anything? How do you trust anything? Well, you examine it. You learn it. You, you may even test it out at some at some level, right? You You experiment with it to see whether it's trustworthy, and then you put your trust in it. Uh, Dickie and I were doing some siding over at Landon's and Courtney's this week, and we set up our scaffolding, and I remember the first time you get up on it. You know, you're kind of testing it, right, to see whether everything's sturdy and not going to tip over and fall, right? And then when you are convinced that you can trust it, you jump up on it, and you put your weight on it, and you work off of the scaffolding. So, so... You know, here, here's what has to happen, I think, in our relationship with God. We need to, and I think God even invites us at some level to test him. Actually, actually he's done all kinds of things to reveal himself to you. He's done all kinds of things to do that, right? He's, he's given you creation itself, which he says is enough. But beyond that, he's put, his, he's put his, the knowledge of himself in your consciences. Every one of you knows there's a God. And you know there's a God because it's in your conscience, You can't get away. Now you can you can ice over your conscience, you can kill your conscience, you can sever your conscience, but you know what? At the beginning, your conscience tells you there is a God. So you got conscience, you got creation, you got prophecy, you got God pointing in Isaiah saying, Hey, remember who told you this ahead of time? Remember who told you ahead of time? You got prophecy. You've got the resurrection of Jesus. You've got the results of the resurrection of Jesus that have changed our world, right? So so at some level, God says test him, but you have to determine whether you're, if Jesus is trustworthy. And if he is trustworthy, then put your faith in him and follow him. That's a good amen, Russell follow him. Put your trust in him and follow him. I'm reading in my, in my devotions, I've been reading about uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Actually, I had it in my notes to share as a testimony, but it's coming out in my sermon here. You know, when, when if you don't know the story, it's, a, it's an awesome story in the Old Testament. I mean, this is the place where God tells Elijah, I've got 7,000 men who haven't bowed the knee to God, I mean to, to Baal. But in this thing, uh, Elijah thinks he's the only one. He makes he puts a challenge with the prophets of Baal. There's hundreds of them, and just him. They build two altars. Whoever calls down fire, uh, you know, is is the true God. If you remember the story, they 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 call all day long, cut themselves, do all kinds of things. Nothing happens. When Elijah calls down, as soon as he calls down, the fire comes and consumes the altar. It's it's it's, they've had water poured on it, etc. And then, and, then, and then Elijah asked this question to the Israelites. How long will you vacillate between two opinions? If Baal is God, then serve him, okay? But if God is God, then serve him. And so I just ask all of you this morning, especially those of you who haven't put your faith in God, you know, if God is God, you know, then serve him. Be all in, be all in. But if he's not God, then what are you doing here? I mean, go out and enjoy your Sunday if God is not God, right? Go enjoy your Sunday doing something else, because I find great joy in meeting with my, with my brothers and sisters, right? So you go, you find something. In it. But listen, if God is God, quit being on the fence and live for God with all your heart. Live for God with all your heart. So... All right. So if, if you're, if you're here this morning and, and you're not all in, then I'm inviting you to be all in. In the Jesus Revolution that I watched last night, uh, Greg Laurie, who's one of the characters, is getting baptized, or at least he goes out into the, into the ocean to be baptized. And Lonnie asks him, he says, are you ready? He says, I don't know. And Lonnie looks at him and he says, well, let me tell you something. And he tells him the gospel and he says, are you ready? And Greg goes, I'm ready. And he gets baptized. I'm asking you, are you ready? Then it's time. It's time. Follow Jesus with all of your heart. Be all in. All right, but what about the rest of us? Is there a way I can grow my faith? Remember, the takeaway is faith, right? The takeaway is faith. Is there any way to grow my faith? Let me give you three things. I'm just going to name them, so don't be afraid. (laughs) I can see the time. The word of God grows my faith. So here's how you can grow your faith. The word of God. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Let me read the verse. So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about the Messiah, Jesus. Faith comes by, by hearing the word of God. So beloved, listen, you want to grow your faith? You want to become deeper in your faith? And every morning, get out your Bible and start reading it. Develop a habit of every day letting the Word of God richly dwell within your heart. And I guarantee you, a bunch of you listening to me this morning, you don't pull out your Bibles every day. I'm not trying to shame you. I'm just simply, I'm encouraging you to change that. And from today forward, say, man, I'm going to get my Bible. It's going to be hard, but I'm going to make a habit out of reading my Bible every single day so that God can grow my faith through His Word. Secondly, the gathering of believers encourages my faith. Hebrews 10.23, let us hold to the confession of our hope without wavering, since He who promised is faithful. There's the there's the bird in the bush, Right? Let's let's hold to his promise that there is coming something better and greater, okay? And let us consider one another in order to provoke uh, love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other all the more as you see the day approaching. Listen, I, I think the Bible teaches us that I grow my faith by being connected to you all. To By being connected to you all so that you can prod me on and encourage me and challenge me. And you're connected to each other for the same purpose. And I'm connected to you for the same purpose. And and listen, this isn't a passive thing, by the way. I don't know if you heard it. It's not passive. You're not encouraged merely by sitting in that chair this morning. You are encouraged when you come here and gather with other believers with the, ex- with the express purpose of trying to encourage one another in your, in your faith. Amen. And so we study God's Word together in small groups in Sunday school. We gather here like this. Re- recently on a Sunday, I saw a friend, and, and I could tell, it was at the gathering, and I could tell something wasn't right. And I stopped, and I talked, and I asked a question, and right away, a bit of emotion bubbled to the surface, And I saw it, I was praying, God, help me encourage. Help me, help me strengthen faith. And that's why God says, that's why God says, don't forget gathering together, because that's how we grow our faith. And I know I'm preaching to folks who are faithfully committed to this time, but if you just happen to be in here today and and and, and, and this isn't one of your commitments, but you're a follower of Jesus, let me just encourage you to re-examine that thought and, and to begin to say, man, no, I'm, I'm going to be a part. I'm going to be connected and involved and I'm going to share and encourage and I'm going to be encouraged. And number three, the exercise of my faith develops... Uh, It develops my faith. The exercise of my faith develops my faith. James chapter 1. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For then your endurance is fully developed. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. Here's what James is saying. Remember last week? If you were here last week, some of you were. Remember the talk dark times? We talked about how we gotta trust God in the dark times and not light our own fires, but listen, let, let Him light our way for us. Remember that? Okay. So when you're in that, when you're in that dark time, here's what happens. When you don't light your own fire and you let Him walk with you through the valley of the shadow of death, because it might seem like that to you. When you get through on the other side of the valley, let me tell you what happens. Your faith is stronger. Your, your, your endurance is greater. You're, there's something that's happened in you and you're able to love God more. If you just keep on pressing on with him, even when you can't see, even when it's dark. Each time you walk by faith and you see God come through, the stronger you're going to be on the other side of it. And here's another thought about exercising your faith. When we take risk for Jesus... It strengthens our faith. When, when he tells us to do something and we do it, we step out and we say, oh, this is so uncomfortable. This is, oh, I don't, this, and we do it anyway. When we're finished, it's like, man, my strength is stronger. I feel better. I, I, I feel stronger in my relationship with God. So, so God invites Peter out on the stormy sea, right? He, he, he walks on the sea. Paul gets invited to go to the Gentile world. All of us are invited to be fishers of men. To make disciples, to be his witnesses, and these Jesus-following request of the Lord. You know, if we're if we're faithful, then then what happens is the next go round, my faith is stronger. I'm stronger because I was faithful to walk in what He challenged me to walk. Now, of course, <laughs> of course, uh, on the other side of the promised land, or in the prom- going to the going through the promised land, there's giants, right? So when God asks you to do some things, man, there's some giants in the land. But here's the promise: God will fight those giants for you. I'm not saying you're going to fight; I'm saying He'll fight those giants for you. So, beloved, here's my conclu- conclusion: Put your faith in Jesus today, now, right now. Why not right now? He said, "I don't understand how to do that." It's just—it's just a cry of your heart. How, your words doesn't—your words don't matter. It's a cry of your heart. So just with, with the best words you got, say, "Jesus." And I want to follow you. I believe you. I put my faith and trust in you. Lord, would you give me the righteousness that comes from God by faith? Grow your faith. Don't be afraid of people. Get excited about the future. The kingdom is coming. It's coming, Mario. The kingdom is coming. And it's going to come quickly in the twinkling of an eye. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check us out on YouTube and Facebook to get to know us and see what God is doing here in Surrey. Be blessed.